2: Well, hello, and good afternoon. If you're listening live, um, that was that song, which is by Bruce Coburn, was dropped by Bruce on the Friday the seventeenth, which was my last day at work before I left for five nights up on Cape Cod, you know, by the water. So, what that means to me, what that says to me, is that Bruce Coburn knows what I'm doing. He's using TikTok to spy on me. I don't. I don't really know what it means. <laughs> but it, it felt important because Bruce Coburn is actually a musician who has had a big impact on my life over the decades. So the idea that he would know that I was going down to the water when I was going down to the water. You can see, you can see how exciting that would be to me. Not necessarily to you. All right, so <laughs> That's actually our new motto for the show, exciting, but not necessarily to you. Um, As part of our rebranding effort, that's what we're going to start saying about ourselves. So let me just tell you that we are going to do uh, Ask or Tell Me Anything, and I I realize that you won't be calling up about anything that anybody could possibly predict, and that's fine. Uh, Do understand I was not around last week. I was not paying any attention. Well, actually, I could just stop the sentence right there. <laughs> I was not paying any attention. Um, but uh, but our number is, is 888. Sorry, 888. See, I don't even know the number. 888-720-WNPR. Don't keep dialing 888. I was just kind of repeating that. 888-720-9677. Or you could just dial 888. How many times is that? Ten times. And I would report on what happens. 888 720 WNPR, 888 720 9677. These are the same number expressed differently. Okay. So um, I do want to say a couple of things about when you take this is the first time, this is the longest period of time, five nights, that I have been able to leave the state of Connecticut, go away, and have something resembling a vacation in more than three years. Uh, I my previous record was four. Some of this is because in the middle of the pandemic, first of all, there was a pandemic, you may recall. Uh, then my son got very sick, not from the pandemic, but in uh, possibly an even more alarming way uh, and still requires uh, quite a bit of attention. Um, then my partner went into the hospital for almost 11 months. And so there just wasn't a lot of like wiggle room for vacation. Uh, and still to this day, it's kind of hard to think about getting away, but we did it. My partner and I and uh, Declan the dog uh, did that. And you know, if you have some quiet time, and it's I I realize I don't like going on vacation where anybody else is going on vacation. Like I would really prefer... The problem with Rome, for example, which is a wonderful city that I've, you know, visited multiple times, is that quite a few other people like to go to Rome. And so they've just, it wrecks it, wrecks it. Like, yeah. I think there might have been a period where nobody went to Rome uh, and, and I may have missed out on that. So it's really nice to be up at Cape Cod in March because it's not that there's nobody there, but there's not many people there. And the people who are there, I think it's fair to say, don't really care what you, what you do because Cape Cod is now, of course, full of private land. You walk towards the water and there's big signs saying, this is the, get off of my assets, uh, you know, uh, condominium development, private land, blah, 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 go away. But in March, those people aren't there. You can go anywhere you want. You can go in their houses and, and you know, and have a drink from their, their tap. Um, get yourself a cold glass of water because there's nobody there. <laughs> and it's very, very nice. And it's also quiet enough so that you really can begin to think, you know, I, I'm, I'm aware anyway that in my own life it is so hectic. You know, we do a whole bunch of these shows every week and I teach. uh, Sometimes I write. And there's just not a lot of time to sit with your own thoughts. And so I did have a chance to – and I'm serious about this too – to genuinely contemplate, you know, sort of my life. (laughs) which is why I spent most of my vacation crying. No, actually, I have a very nice life. Um, I do want to say a couple of things that are uh, something about a couple of things that are coming up. Oh, that's so great. That's so great what the first call is about. Good Lord, Lord, help me. Um, So um, I do want to say a a couple of things uh, about this week. So um, tomorrow we're going to put a rerun on because we're kind of you know warming up our jets here and also I'll be teaching. Uh, but Wednesday, we're going to do a show about malapropisms and mondegreens. Malapropisms, you probably know, and they're named after Mrs. Malaprop from, a, I think, a Richard Brinsley Sheridan play, The Rivals, maybe? Uh, and it's just the misuse of words uh, and you're using the word the wrong way, using the, you know, you know what a malaprop is. Mondegreens are maybe a little bit more obscure. These are typically misheard lyrics. Uh, and they, um, you know, it's sort of like there's a bathroom on the right. Or excuse me while I kiss this guy. Um, they actually come from uh, s- similar to Lady to Mrs Malaprop. Th- th- these also come from the British Isles, so to speak. I mean, the name does. Um, it comes from a Scottish ballad called "The Bonnie Earl of Murray," and I will, uh, I will. Uh, Read you or possibly sing you the frequently misunderstood part. Being a Scottish ballad, it's going to be very primitive, and obviously um, the word "have" is is instead expressed as "hae," and I'm not even quite sure how I would even pronounce that. Uh, but um, so here we go: uh, Ye highlands and ye lowlands, oh where hay you been? They hay slain the Earl of Murray and Lady Maundaring. And, and so it's actually, and laid him on the green. But people hear that as Lady him green. It's similar similar to Gladly the Cross-Eyed Bear. Everybody knows about that Cross-Eyed Bear, Gladly. So anyway, I'm very excited about all that. And then on Thursday, you will hear a show. We're actually recording it tomorrow. But uh, you will hear a show that we, has been six months in the making. Six months in the making um, or so. And But when I say that, what I mean is that Five or six months ago, Lily Tyson, our senior producer, asked somebody if we could interview Emily St. John Mandel, whose last three novels have been just world-changing for me and for a lot of people. And they said yes. (laughs) They gave us a date five months or six months in the future. I don't know how long ago it was. Anyway, that day has finally come. It will come tomorrow. Uh, And one of the things I did in my time off was— Listened to the audiobook of The Glass Hotel, which I hadn't experienced before, and read for the second time, Sea of Tranquility. Probably your most famous book is Station Eleven, which became an HBO thing, miniseries, whatever. But um, this is, I am breaking a rule of mine. One of my rules is don't interview somebody whose work means a lot to you. Don't interview somebody you idolize or whose art, whose creativity is very, very special to you and speaks to you in very specific ways because you, and by you, I mean me, I will not do a very good job. I know this from, <laughs> from painful experience, but I can't pass up the chance to interview Emily St. John Mandel because her work has been so incredibly important to me. All right. Uh, let's start. This is like the perfect call to begin this show with. Uh, because it's the kind of call that we get instead of calls about March Madness or Donald Trump, assuming there's any difference between those two things. Uh, Barbara from Simsbury, you have the floor. Hello, how are you? I'm just fine.
0: I, I don't know much in life, but here's the thing. I have a fascination for William Shakespeare and also for John Donne, the poet, and also the clergyman. And so they both lived in Elizabethan times when uh they were chopping off the heads of Catholics etc etc which is how come John Donne left England for a while when he was young went to do the uh work in the Spanish armada and then came back and was and was um persuaded to change from Catholicism to the Church of England and, and so forth. So anyway, here's the thing. They both were healthy young men. They both married underage girls for which they had to spend some time in jail. But what I wanted to know, because uh, John Donne also apparently attended some plays, did they work Uh, Did did they live in the same period? Did they have any connection, any interaction, like a letter or uh, any kind of comment that they knew each other?
2: That's it. Yeah, they both went to the same chiropractor. We know that. uh, There are bills... They're, they both received bills from this guy, um, okay. so they both had back trouble. Uh, pretty much everybody in the 16th century had back trouble. I mean, it was like, you know, how are you not going to have back trouble? It's the 16th century. Uh, so um, I don't know the answer to this. It's actually the kind of thing that fascinates me. I mean, I'm always intrigued by, like, who was in Vienna in 1908, you know? Who who was at Princeton when von Neumann Let me see if I can get this up right. I think Einstein, Gödel, and von Neumann were all at Princeton at the same time. I don't think they hung out. Uh, but you know, the occasional ping pong tournament maybe but uh, you know but I, I I share your interest like did these people ever meet? You know, would there be any reason to suppose uh, that they had contact with one another. So, perhaps someone out there knows the answer to this. Uh, eight, don't make things up because Barbara really wants to know the real answer. 888-720-WNPR. That's a number you can call in. 888-720 9677. Seven. Uh, we will close this call with uh, a few words from Good Morrow. Let's see discoverers to new worlds have gone. Let maps to others, worlds on worlds have shown. Let us possess one world. Each hath one and is one. There's a bathroom on the right. Uh, all right. Thanks so much <laughs> for uh, We threw in a little Mondagreen there. But Barbara, thanks for beginning. Beginning of our day on a suitably obscure note. Uh, all right, so let's go now to Anthony. Anthony in New Haven. Uh, I don't even know what this question is going to be, or or comment is going to be. But Anthony, you have the conch shell.
1: Thank you, Colin. So my question is: um, My wife and I moved up from Florida uh, a number of years ago, and we bought a small house in. The, a very upscale neighborhood in New Haven. And we're the youngest ones in the neighborhood. In fact, um, we're the only millennials. And so my question is, we notice that uh, we are the only ones that pay someone to plow our snow in the winter. Uh, so our neighbors who are in their 60s and 70s are plowing their own snow. Meanwhile, my wife and I, who are millennials, are paying someone to do it
2: for us. So, I mean, your neighbors, so, I assume, I they assume your neighbors have snow blowers, right? No, not necessarily. Some of them
1: are out there with shovels.
2: With shovels? Okay. I thought we were going to yeah. go in the other direction. Some of them have like snow cats or something. But um, so, well, Um, Let me just say this. Um, I pay someone to plow my driveway. Now, our driveway is really long and uh, quite a steep hill. And we've actually watched. We have a hard time getting someone to plow our driveway because people have been known to break plows on our driveway because it's so steep. Um, But, um, you know, I think probably this is something that people kind of get into the habit of. I don't know your neighbors personally, but they get into the habit of it. And maybe even it's kind of an article of pride. I don't think it's a smart idea to be out there shoveling if you're, you know, in your fifties, sixties, seventies. It's really a really easy way to get a heart attack. Um, so I, I don't endorse that. But I sort of get why people, you know, they get the, they get the snowblower, they get a really good one that they don't really have to push or anything, and it's you know they, they feel like it's a win, right? Um, now I actually think what you're doing is smarter, and I'll tell you why. Particularly in here, the era of climate change. You don't really know how many times you're going to have to snow. You need to get the snow off your driveway. You might only have to do it like eight more times that you live there. <laughs> <laughs> so investing in a snow in a snow blower is, is is a pretty bad idea. And do you have to uh, one of the things that fascinates me is this whole idea that you have to buy orange little orange stakes, little poles. Did, did you do that?
1: Or stakes are pulled? No, I did not
2: do that. See, you probably just have a straight driveway. I mean, it it is an irony that in some cases, like where I used to live, the guy who plowed the driveway had never seen the driveway. Like he's just not around when there's not any snow. So like he didn't know what my driveway looked like. (laughs) So it was really important to have those, like this is is what we're going for. Don't plow anywhere else. so I don't know. I think it's okay. I don't think you should do you feel guilty? Is that the problem? You feel like you should be You know, I, I do just a little bit. I feel like I'm lazy or
1: something, but you know, I I read an interesting article a number of years ago that actually advocated for if you can afford it to buy yourself out of little, you know, annoying tasks like cleaning your house or plowing your snow because it frees you up to focus, you know, on leisure or, or even work. And it, it talked about how there's this kind of Protestant work ethic at play where people feel like they need to do these tasks that are you know, somewhat time-consuming uh, just for the sake of doing them, even though they could easily pay someone to do it, and that would free them up to do you know, things that they want to do.
2: Right. Do you know who wrote that article? John, I don't remember. No, it was John Dunn. John Dunn wrote that article because he was Catholic and he kept looking at these Protestants, uh, you know, shoveling the snow. <laughs> He's thinking they could be doing something so much better with their time. I actually endorse the spirit of that um, article in this. And I think you should, too. I think, uh, Anthony, you should say if anybody even arches an eyebrow at you, you should say, look. While that guy is plowing my driveway, I am engineering a new enzyme, which may eliminate heart disease permanently. So which do you want me to do? <laughs> which do you want me to do? Do you want me to go out there and shovel snow? Or do you want me to save lives? Uh, you know, and I think it's, you know, then you just rest your case. How does that sound?
1: I, I will keep that in my back pocket the yeah. next time I get a side glance.
2: Right. Right. You should probably keep something else in your back pocket. Keep some aspirin in your back pocket and just remember it. All right. So, I don't know. I feel like I could do one more call. Uh, Okay. I think I can do one. Oh, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) I like it when there's sort of a little, you should pardon the expression, avalanche of calls about a particular topic. Uh, Here's Julie from Wallingford. You have the conch shell.
3: Hi, Colin. Hi. Shoveling is one of the joys of my
2: life. Ah, see, now that's fine, you know? It's like, beautiful, and I'm in my
3: 60s, and I hope I deal it to my
2: 90s. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're hale and hearty and you like doing it, and there's a chop wood, carry water kind of quasi-Buddhist uh, experience that you're yeah. having because you're fully present in your snow shoveling, yeah. but that's not what, when Anthony is shoveling snow, he's thinking the whole time, about all the other things he wishes he were doing. And he's also thinking that he wishes he wasn't doing this. So he's not, you know, having any kind of, you know, higher stakes. Maybe state.
3: because he was from Florida, he never found the joy, but he might still find it. Yeah. Yeah. It is beautiful. It's quiet, it's almost always quiet. And if it's heavy snow, just take less of a shovel hole.
2: Yeah. Actually DeSantis has eliminated all the books that is in any way valorize snow shoveling from the Florida curriculum. So the kids growing up there now, <laughs> well only be, yes, they wouldn't even know laughing. what it is you do. They'll be completely they'll come up here they'll go why is that woman out there with a stick with a thing at the end of it moving the snow around? They would they'll be baffled. Well, you know But I think that's beautiful. I you know, and I also think there's a lot of room here in our universe for someone who hates to shovel snow and somebody who loves to.
3: Yeah, because it really, it's lovely. And I also think of it almost kind of as public service. Like, I know that I will shovel better than a snowblower because I'll get down to the sidewalk and I don't want people slipping or falling on my sidewalk.
2: You are hardcore. You are rolling deep. You are rolling deep here. Uh, All right. Well, I think that's beautiful. And you know, the best thing about you... Well, it's not the best thing about you. I'm sure there are other things about you that are exemplary, but it is true as somebody who walks his dog around the neighborhood that you come to the part of the sidewalk where someone has had no plan whatsoever. You know, they haven't shoveled. They haven't had a snowblower. They haven't hired somebody Ah. to come. There's just stuff that is... Freezing and refreezing, and you know, just getting worse and worse. And they'd ever put any That's sand talk. or salt, and you just think, Oh, oh, you, you menace to society, you person who has no plan for your own sidewalk. So, so I salute you, but be careful. Well, thank you very much. All right, and okay. don't, don't take big, big loads of take smaller loads, uh, you know, shovelfuls. All right, now it is time for us to take a break. We have other people calling in. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Uh, we, and the number is 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. And now a song by John Dunn. And you'll be
0: In a world of pure imagination Take a look And you'll see into your imagination We'll begin with a spin Traveling
1: in a world Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body, oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO GO team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the GO team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
4: I was headed back from me of Eden. She was headed back to East LA. The sun is going down now and I'm feeling like a bird
2: So be careful with that CBD, all right? They make you have strange thoughts. All right. It's Ask or Tell Me Anything. That means you can call 888-720-WNPR, which is the same thing as 888-720-9677. And you can ask or tell me anything. That seems to be pretty self-explanatory. Uh, all right, we have a lot of calls here. I'm going to try to get to through as many of them as possible. I'll go up to the top here, and we'll start with Lorene from Torrington. Hi, you're on the air.
5: Hi, Colin. I was wondering if what's going on with the layoffs at NPR is going to have any effect, hopefully not, at WNPR.
2: Hopefully not. Um, well, so... Um, Yeah. So the layoffs are coming in NPR. They also come a little bit to the north of us um, with some of our brothers and sisters up in Springfield. I've been told that they will not affect us because our CEO, Mark Contreras, who is very, very sharp about this kind of stuff, he uh, put our um, entire endowment in this um, really kind of, I guess, really kind of cutting edge financial institution. I'm looking up the name of it right now. It's called... Silicon Valley uh, Bank. <laughs> so, and he says, really, we're just, you know, we're untouchable now. So, we're going to be fine. No, you know, this station, I don't actually don't really know how they do it. Bitcoin, I think, but <laughs> but uh <laughs> NFTs. I don't know. But this station we continue to grow, uh we uh, are um expanding our mission, adding people. In fact, this is my chance right now, Lorraine, to mention that Here at the Colin McEnroe Show, we are excited to welcome, as of today, to our midst a part-time producer. We um, had the opportunity to look at a lot of really good candidates for this job, uh, but Carolyn McCusker uh, is the person that we chose. We're very excited about her. Um, and this is kind of an interesting hire, learning too, because, you know, as you may or may not know, we hired Lily Tyson, not really understanding that she was not from this planet. Uh, she's from a planet <laughs> that, as far as we know, doesn't even really have, like, a word name. They don't barely do that. There's some stellar coordinates, you know, just some numbers and dashes and stuff. That's where she's from. Uh, and so we've now hired Carolyn, who's actually, I think, one of the first hires in public radio from the future. She lives in 2135. Uh, and she will be, I guess, using a portal to come here from time to time, but, you know, mainly doing remote stuff producing from 2135, where they have something better than Zoom. Uh, and uh, we're just, you know, we, we're thrilled. But in terms of the layoffs, I wouldn't worry. Everything that you know and love here at WNPR, CT Public, is, you know, rock solid for now, anyway. I mean, who knows what well, the future brings.
5: That's good. It sounds as if the perhaps NPR, got over its skis a bit with all the podcasts and all that kind of thing?
2: Like, I will say this. I hope this doesn't sound withering. or I I don't mean this in an unkind way, but except for Invisibilia, I'd never heard of the podcast. (laughs) The other three podcasts that were implicated in this, I didn't know what they were. And I work in public radio, and I love podcasts. So, yeah, I mean, you know, this—it doesn't necessarily portend— I mean, here's—I'll tell you something kind of serious and true— some of the fundraising model that we've used in public radio, uh, the kind of membership pledges and stuff like that it's uh-huh. it's starting to tail you know it's tailing off a bit. It's not maybe necessarily the kind of vibrant model that we that it used to be and we are having to look around for other ways to to do these things uh, and you know I mean once again, I think we've got smart people running this place. I'm not one of them. Uh, but um, I, you know, I think we're okay. And you know, the and I feel terrible for the people up in Springfield. I feel terrible for the people at NPR National. It's just awful to lose their jobs. You know, I've been fired. I know what that feels like. Um, mm-hmm. And um, on the other hand. It, it feels terrible and then you realize, okay, so this is my chance to reinvent and do something else and figure out something else. And maybe some of those people are going to do podcasts that are on different platforms with some of the smaller producers like Pineapple Street, you know, uh, or Maximum Fun or something like that. And and maybe they'll do just killer podcasts there. So, you know, they you never know what the future brings. I think the second time I've said that in this. But let's face the music and dance, right, Lorraine?
5: Well, I'm, re- I'm really glad that The Wheelhouse is back.
2: Yes. Well, who isn't? Who isn't happy that The Wheelhouse is back? And I'm especially happy that Ollie the Octopus is back. I named Ollie, and I pled for, I begged for his life, too, uh, on more than one occasion. All right. Here we go. Here we go with John from Ellington, who's been waiting a while. I'm just going to go right down the grid here. Hi, John. You have the floor. Hi, Colin. Thanks.
6: I appreciate being on your show
2: today. Well, I'm, I appreciate Before, you being here.
6: Okay. Thanks. Before the uh, Connecticut legislature, right now, actually in the public health committee, there's, there's many bills, but there's a particular bill I want to talk about that's looking to establish overdose pre- prevention sites here in Connecticut. They've been called in other places, in safe injection sites. They're places where people who tend to who are addicted to opiates or other drugs, any drug, actually. Can go and use um, their drug in in a place with, uh, that's supervised by medical personnel. In case they should overdose, they can be revived. Um, I know it's a bit controversial here; it's a bit controversial everywhere. But it's been done all over the world in over 200 sites, and many of them right, right in Canada. And the latest two have been opened in, in New York City. Um, so we're we're trying to push through the, through that. Hopefully, we'll get through the committee, and then up for a vote. Um Before the Connecticut state legislature before very long,
2: yeah I you know I mean tolstoy said god in, God is in the details, so i I don't know the details here. I'm therefore a little reluctant to pronounce, but it sounds like a very smart idea. I mean, fentanyl is you know probably the most unpredictable uh drug that we we've seen uh, and the, the fact that it's mixed into other yeah. drugs and stuff like that we just this is a horrible situation we can't. Uh, We can't tolerate the kind of body count that we've already got here. So it's it's time to try some new stuff that maybe doesn't sound like the old stuff. That's why they call it new stuff, and that does sound like a a pretty exciting idea. So uh, I I haven't followed that bill. I will try to learn about it and possibly support it. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, we had Roz from Covington, which I think is in Kentucky, uh, and uh, she uh, had to hang up and now she's back. Hi, Roz. Hi,
7: Colin. I'm actually in Tennessee. Ah, I was close. Close, close. Yeah. Just down just 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 down a little. Yeah. So, uh you had a show the other day on um reviews, you know, online reviews. And,
2: mm-hmm.
7: and uh it stuck with me that bad reviews really stick. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, back in the 90s when um Burt Reynolds and Lonnie Anderson were going through a really ugly divorce, I was in the supermarket and my friend turns to me and she says, Burt's a dud in bed, and I said, what? She says, Lonnie says, Burt's a dud in bed, <laughs> and I look, and the tabloid has big, bold letters crossed up. Lonnie Anderson says, Burt's a dud in bed, and I mean that's a bad review, and it stuck with me. And now, whenever I see the man, all I think is, you're dud in bed.
2: I I know I, I, I yeah I know what you're talking. about. That's been said about me on Yelp, uh, and. Uh... <laughs> It's very painful.
7: You see? So you feel the pain. Yeah, I feel the pain. And now she had said Burt makes great, you know, coffee. I never would have remembered. <laughs> but.
2: He, he, did, he did make great coffee, first of all. And, <laughs> and also, this is the man, wasn't he like the first celebrity, playgirl, centerfold guy? I'm sorry to ask you this, but then you're I, the one. You
7: know, I don't know, but I think, that, I think that he was, that was his prowess, right? He was uh, supposed to be some big Casanova.
2: Well, yeah, I don't know and, about that, uh, but I mean, I think he really, you know, he kind of laid it all on the line, so to speak, wasn't he? Pants, do you think know I think, you, I think yeah. you're
7: right. I think I, I think you are right on that. I, yeah, I don't. I I can't be. A, I wouldn't put my life on it, but I think it, that sounds very
2: familiar. Actually, we require all of our callers to vouchsafe <laughs> their their actual existences. Uh, are you sure, they, or is it
7: just <laughs> the ones who call from Tennessee who are transplanted from Hartford?
2: No, we we like Tennessee. Okay, you know, my dog's oh. from my dog came from Tennessee. He's fine. Oh, I mean, okay. we had to. We had to straighten him out about a few things, but um, but well, I want to say one thing while we're talking about this. I think Burt Reynolds is actually an underrated actor. I mean, he wound up kind of doing a lot of this stuff like, you know, this Cannonball Run stuff, and I, I'm not necessarily casting asparagus on that either, but... You know, like, Starting Over is one of the most terrific male rom-com performances. Anybody who hasn't watched Starting Over, actually all three of them, Jill Clayburgh, Candace Bergen, and Burt Reynolds, are spectacular. And it's one of the great rom-coms of all time, too. And the stuff that he does even just with the arching and eyebrow, you know, or something like that, (laughs) he's really, really good. He's a much more subtle actor than he's been given credit for. And, you know, there's, like, Deliverance and stuff like that, too. But, um, he, you know, and he kind of let himself be turned into a little bit of a show business joke about himself at, at a certain point. I don't think he ever took himself really seriously either. But I think he's a pretty good actor. So, uh, so there. I don't care what Lonnie says, and it could have well, been he just could have, you know, maybe if she'd read him a really romantic John Donne poem. You know, I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe some of it's on her. Is what I'm saying.
7: Well, yes, I'm. I'm not taking her side by yeah. any means. I just it just stuck with me, and I've never. Been able to see him without those those words.
2: All right. Well, I, you know, if I could use a neuralizer to clear your mind of those things, I would do that. If I could give you the the eternal sunshine of a spotless mind about Burt Reynolds's bedroom prowess, I would I would do that just because I think it would bring you greater happiness. All right. So uh, <laughs> we do sort of lurch around here from thing to thing, don't we? It's the thing I love about this show. I mean, I love. Mottliness. Uh So here is Linda from Simsbury. Hi.
5: Hey, Colin. I'm so glad you got away, and it's so good to hear you laughing and so energized.
2: I know. I was was kind of a flatlining there for a while.
5: You, it's so much fun <laughs> hearing you today. So I have a big idea, although it's only half fake because I'm not that big a thinker, mm-hmm. but that's why I'm calling you, because you're a big thinker. I have an idea of how to or that we could or should issue to every man, woman, and child on the planet a carbon credit to use as they please. And, but it can't be sold. I don't know how to not commodify it, but it can't be sold. It can only be given away. And that would in turn allow people to use their credits to support carbon users or carbon creators that they want, or they could sit on them and and thereby practically vote against things that are going to be problematic to the planet.
2: So why don't you think they should be fungible, you know, tradable, sellable, whatever?
5: Because Because then the carbon emitters would buy them up and people would still be getting flooded and burning up and droughts and the carbon emitters like the United States would be in perfect shape.
2: Yeah, I mean, okay, that's a really good argument. I mean, first of all, right. and, and I don't once again I don't want to let any of the air out of your balloon. This idea has been around for a while since I think the 1990s maybe. Typically for each ser-
5: person?
2: Yes, it's called uh, PCA, I think personal carbon allowance, but usually well,
5: I thought it was only
2: for countries. No, no. Okay. Usually, I mean, it's an idea. That's all it is. It's an idea that never went anywhere. But um, I think it has to be fungible. Uh, I think in order, first of all, in order to make it palatable, it has to be fungible. And it's, I think, if you design it, well, it, can it be th- given away. Well, it can be given away. But I think it's more appealing to people if they can trade it for something. Uh, but and,
5: that's the problem.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, if you keep it low enough, in other words, you you figure out an optimal level. Uh, and whatever that optimal level is it's sustain it's a sustainable level um even if it gets passed around I, well, I don't think I don't see the harm uh,
5: so it uh, counters um, a, a part of my um, theory um, so people would only be given like uh the big thinkers like say MIT people would come up with a per person carbon. Credit yeah. that would keep the planet from not going up another one and a half degrees, mm-hmm. and and so that's why it can't be sellable because uh, it would negate make having companies, having countries, having people make choices of how they spend or use their carbon.
2: Yeah, but in other words, I, uh, you know, I don't want to take up too much more time here, but if the uh, aggregate amount of all of these PCAs— Was 100, yeah. Well, no, let's say the the aggr- aggregate amount of all the PCAs issued to everybody in the country or everybody in the world or whatever we're talking about here, if it's, if it's less than the current level of carbon consumption, significantly uh, and improvingly less— than our current amount of carbon consumption, it just seems like it's a win no matter whose hands it winds up in, and in a way, you create incentives for for you know for Joe Schmo to sort of say, in other words, if I'm if I'm a grasshopper, if you're a grasshopper and you're an ant, if I'm a grasshopper right. and you're an ant, okay, so you're an ant and you're not using that much carbon, and I'm a grasshopper and I'm using the absolute maximum amount of my PCA. Um, Mm -hmm. You and I are treated exactly the same way, um, which doesn't seem fair to you, Uh, whereas you as an ant have probably an incentive to even scrimp a little bit more on carbon. Uh, And then, yeah, then you have a decision to make. You can sell it. You can give it. Uh, you can give it to the charity of your choice whatever but you know you could do a lot of different things with it you could sell it to northeast utilities and give the money to the national resource defense council you could do a lot of different things but mm-hmm. but it, it seems to me that to make it workable uh you you want to do that um, but you know will this will be debated in congress and you and I will both probably speak at the hearings uh
5: I'll yeah. see you in at the
2: Nobel Prize. Um, <laughs> That's right. <board. laughs> no, I'm I'm going to give you the Nobel Prize. I, I feel like you deserve it. Uh, you've you've you know you stayed with this idea a lot longer than I have. I'm 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 a parvenu. I'm a dilettante when it comes to PCAs. All right, we have some space open on the board right now. Should I, I guess I'll take Katie's call and then we'll go to a break. Uh, all right. Um, here is Katie, also from Simsbury. A lot of Simsbury people here today. Huh? Nothing wrong with that, of course. Hi, Katie. Yeah.
8: Hi, Colin. I'm so excited. Um, I am totally switching gears and um, have a question for you. But first, I wanted to say that over the weekend, I was researching my ancestry um, and got back to the person that came over from England. um, And I just wanted to give him a shout out. (laughs) His name is John Perham, spelled like Perham. And he landed in Chelmsford, Massachusetts. In 1666, huh. um, and I, yeah, I also went back even farther to the 1400s in Exeter, England, and found out some things like they were Sir John, uh, Sir John Perryum spelled differently, was a mayor of Exeter in his lifetime. But I'm even more impressed by the people that came over here and started settling the, the unknown lands. So I just, I'm very proud of. Those things I found out, and I wanted to ask you if you have um, knowledge of your family settling and when and where and all that.
2: I do know a little bit about this. And so, I mean, I'm not the kind of person who typically does, but I was working on a book, which is called My Father's Footprints. It was about my father. Um, And I wound up discovering that nobody in the McEnroe family knew anything about the McEnroe family. Um, (laughs) In fact, they didn't even know anything about each other uh, or themselves. But so... (laughs) That's, that's a bigger problem. But I wound up going back to Ireland, and I, I found the McEnroes in a little town called Mount Nugent, which is about halfway between Cavan and Oldcastle, and it <laughs> doesn't really help very much. And it turns Thank out you. that one of the McEnroes had at one point introduced in the 1500s John Donne to Shakespeare. No, that's not true. Um, <laughs> But what, it, what happens is you go back there, and particularly in Ireland, because like all that's happened in Ireland until, until quite recently is people coming and taking things. <laughs> the entire history of the country is like, all right, I think we'll take all your trees. You don't want those trees, do you? Because we, we'd like them. You know? So if you show up at the house of somebody you know, and you say, hi, I'm your relative from America, their immediate thought is, this guy is here to take my, my house. What does he want? <laughs> he wants this, right? He's going to use it as a vacation home. Um, so it isn't people aren't necessarily all that happy to see you. But anyway, I did learn a bit about it. Okay, I'll tell you the thing. It's, I'll do it real fast. So I found this okay. priest, and he was going through the um, <clears throat> the books, and he put together a few clues. He was a very funny guy, uh, and he looked up. and he said, he said, "You took soup." That's what that's what happened. You took soup, and I didn't know what that <laughs> meant. Now, what that meant was, <clears throat> if you were Catholic uh, during the during the famine, uh, the, the the Protestant Church in Ireland would feed you. Uh, if you would convert, if you would uh, become a Protestant, and if you were hungry enough, you might do that. And that apparently is what my family, out of desperation during yeah. the famine, did. They took soup, which is, I mean, obviously not something that people are celebrated for. Although I guarantee you, I would have, I would have church from Catholic to Protestant for a golf <laughs> chair. You know, never mind soup. Uh, but it's a famine anyway. So the, I, I, I found shame. But it was a kind of shame that I I could relate to. Anyway, Katie, you have been a delight, as usual, to talk to. And we are going to take a break right now, and then we're going to come back. That's what we do.
4: These days, something's always turning into nothing will change. I'm just trying to find a.
2: All right, so first of all, uh, our number, uh, we're going to do a little bit more of Ask or Tell Me Anything. We do have some spots open on the board. 888-720-9677. 888-720-9677. That also can be expressed as 888-720-WNPR. Now it's time to thank, first uh, Cat Pastor, our technical producer. Jonathan McPants is in there. Uh, uh, he's producing this show, and he's he's going through the calls and and putting them up on the board and telling me what they're all about. Also, thanks to our senior producer, Lily Tyson. Also, once again, uh, welcome. Welcome to Carolyn McCusker, who's going to join us and going to be producing one episode a week. Uh, from 2135. She lives in the future. It's very exciting. All right, so uh, let's go to Mary in Hamden. Hi Mary, you're on the air.
4: Hi Colin, how are you? I'm just fine. I know how you are. You're good. I'm good. I heard heard you say that to everybody.
2: That's right. I I wouldn't lie that many times.
4: (laughs) It's nice to hear your voice. Listen, I have a really naive question. And I'm probably the only person in the world who doesn't know the answer to this. So I apologize. But there are people who stand on exit entrance ramps, you know, like when you get off mm-hmm. the Merritt on the Woodbridge or at large um, intersections, the Boulevard, El Grasso Boulevard or, and Route 1, for example. And they're standing there. They're usually, you know, down and out looking people of all. They're very diverse. Mm-hmm. And they always have a little cardboard sign handwritten in crappy handwriting about working for, I don't know, nothing I guess. Is that a franchise? Is that an organized corporation that sends people out and sets them up?
2: Because you see it everywhere. That's a very naive question. No. um,
4: Yeah, Yeah, I know. I apologize. No, no, no. No,
2: I'm I'm just kidding. Um, I'm not aware that any such thing is the case. Um, if If somebody knows something about that, they can feel free to call me. It would seem like the kind of thing that would be just sort of unbelievably exploitive. Uh, I think these are people you know who are desperate um, and I will say that I do see them sometimes at times of day and in weathers where you would really right. have to be pretty right. pretty desperate to be out there um, uh, and uh, what I often sometimes I want to give them something but it's sort of a little weird like rolling down your window and particularly in the era of COVID having somebody stick their head in the car and stuff like that although I do sometimes find ways to very quickly pass you know a couple of bucks uh, out the window or something. I'm, I'm not assuming that they are part of some kind of uh, fiendish cult or organization. Uh, if they are, please let me know. Um, but even if they are part of a, but if they're part of a fiendish cult, they still have like one of the worst jobs in the world. So I guess well, I'm sort of happy to get. i
4: suggesting. I'm not suggesting that they're part of a fiendish cult or anything like that. I'm just really curious because when I travel anywhere, you can see you can see this, and it's always the same tattered cardboard sign, handwritten. It, there's just something so um, modular about it, something so similar everywhere. And the people do change from from sometimes day to day. Um, not necessarily the places, the locations, but the people will change.
2: Yeah, and, well, it's an interesting point. And I, my guess is, that the reason that it all kind of looks similar, the signs look kind of similar, is more just the human capacity for mimesis, you know, that we just tend to sort of <laughs> imitate one another. Uh, and so we see, see somebody doing it, and we're... But I, I think the consistent theme here... City to city, place to place is probably poverty uh, as opposed to you know, some kind of orga- organized effort to extract money from people. But you know, I'd be happy to be – I don't know whether I would be happy to be proven wrong. It doesn't seem like happiness plays a big role here uh, in any particular way. All right, here's somebody calling up about something that I know nothing about. But why would, why would that bother me? Here's Levi from West Hartford. Hi, you have the conch shell. Hi,
9: Colin. Um, I wanted to call in about uh, an article that appeared about Hartford schools in the newspaper, in the Hartford Current, yesterday, um, describing sort of these grisly conditions in which Hartford teachers are finding themselves and how they're fleeing the district in uh, numbers that make them irreplaceable, quite literally, or at least mathematically irreplaceable. And uh, it struck me, you know, with uh, the with, – I mean – it seemed a little bit on the nose that uh, that uh, these teachers were describing how bad conditions have become and how sort of uh, unfeeling the district seemed. And the district replied not by the superintendent, but by a PR, PR manager that they hired. Um, and it made me think, you know, it, when, you, when you think back in the 90s, uh, there was this sort of spate of, of, of police, uh, of post office shootings, that were ultimately traced back to this sort of toxic work environment. And today we have these horrible school shootings and Republicans only want to talk about mental illness when mentally ill people tend to be less violent than others. And Democrats only want to talk about guns. But it sure seems as if, at least the numbers I've read, that they're hitting these public schools much harder than any other kind of school. And I don't think it's coincidental that so many public school districts mistreat their teachers so terribly, especially uh, after the pandemic.
2: You know, I, I sur- certainly agree. I don't agree that the school shootings have anything to do with this and if you sort of look where the school shootings occur. They don't necessarily occur along a kind of fault line of poverty and understaffing and stuff like that. I mean, you know, Columbine was, a, for example, a pretty, you know, well-maintained aff- high school in an affluent com- community. but. You know, it does disturb me to hear this just having lived through the 90s and the testimony during Chef versus O'Neill. You know, if if it's gotten worse since then, I mean, it was so bad at that time. There, the, the physical plant problems were so extreme, uh, the conditions of poverty which impair the student's ability to get educated, the cultural deprivation of these kids, uh, and, and the isolation. It, it's like a game refuge uh, for poor people in many ways, and, and the educational system is simply a mirror of that. Uh, And if it's actually gotten worse for teachers who are already having to bring in their own supplies and just, you know, working in really deplorable conditions and we're exhibiting great courage and dedication to do that, um, that would sicken my heart. Uh, On that note, (laughs) sorry, uh, we don't plan these things. We'd like to live on – well, we'll leave on a positive note anyway that somewhere out there someone is currently uh, researching the relationship between John Donne and Shakespeare – We hope to have uh, news updates about that uh, and how it impacts the Burt Reynolds, Lonnie Anderson story uh, in the near future. Thanks for listening today. Thanks to everybody who helped out.